Today's episode is going to be all about rituals. We're going to be talking about ways to make everyday actions in your life, things that you do on a daily basis into more meaningful experiences. I'm going to be speaking to Casper De Quill. I hope I'm saying his, his last name right. He is the host of a very popular um, podcast that reads sacred texts, reads Harry Potter as a sacred text, which is very interesting. He went to Harvard Divinity School and um, he's an amazing person. He just wrote a book on rituals, the power of rituals. So um, I can't wait to kind of share this conversation with you guys and dig into ways to allow you to make more meaningful experiences out of the small things that you that you do in your life, how to create uh, moments of meaning, well-being, and uh, a sense of presence, how to, how to bring that into the things that you do and into your life. So since the show is all about connecting to some kind of a state of stillness and then, you know, going out and taking some action, whatever that may look like, some meaningful action to create some, I guess, a way of living more meaningfully and to do things that mean something to you instead of just kind of floating through life. I thought this this conversation was super relevant to the show and um, that's why I got Casper on. So if you're enjoying the show, please hit the subscribe button. If you're if you're listening on the podcast and the audio only, please do check out the YouTube channel. If you're if you're watching on YouTube, please check out the podcast on anywhere you can find a podcast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, that kind of thing, because I've included and incorporated different elements um, on either side. Uh, but yeah, let's get into the conversation with Casper, and I really really hope that you get something out of this, and um, we can. Like I said, go on this journey of learning, growth, and expansion together. Let's do it. Hi, my name's Michael, and welcome to Today Dreamer, a podcast and YouTube channel that examines the interplay between inner work and outer work. Through conscious conversations and practical walkthroughs, we'll be exploring ideas and practices to help you find a deeper sense of clarity, develop your focus, and take meaningful action. I hope you love the show. And I was hoping what we could do is maybe start with a bit of a ritual um, just to kind of sure. kick things off. What I usually do is I do this kind of behind the scenes before the guest comes on because I'm, I'm running around quite a bit. And I just usually take, you know, one or two really slow and deep breaths uh, before I begin each episode just as a way to kind of, as because I'm running around so much beforehand, it really calms me down and I, it kind cool. of brings me back to a level where I'm ready to kind of engage. So... Um, what I do is just take as slow as I can really, um, in through the nose and then try to, try to kind of direct it into the belly and then just slowly, slowly exhale. So do you want to do a couple together? That sounds great. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Just feel the energy has changed already. You know, it's, mm. it's quite a nice feeling. So, Casper, 
where do we begin with this? <laughs> I'm thinking. Um, I'm thinking probably. You know, it's probably a normal thing that you do. Um, but a definition of ritual for everyone out there might be nice. Um, or, or your definition actually, because I'm sure there's a different, a few different ways you could take it. Um, but I'm interested to hear kind of how you would define ritual. Yes, <laughs> there's definitely different <laughs> interpretations out there. Um, I'll give you the way that I think about it in my heart and the way I think about it with my head, <laughs> just to give kind of two different different ways in. Um, the first thing to say is that often we, we use the word ritual next to words like habit or routine. Um, and I, I think, honestly, that doesn't help us very much. You know, habits and routines are things that we do frequently, sometimes every day, that fulfill a functional purpose. So you brush your teeth because you want to have good dental hygiene, uh, you know. Um, and a ritual is, is not performed or practiced because of the, the functional purpose, but often because it has an, an orientation towards meaning or, 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 or symbolic uh, evocation. So um, although sometimes from the outside they can look the same, a ritual is really oriented toward, toward things of, of ultimate meaning and purpose. And so in, in the kind of heady description, you can think about ritual as a, a patterned repetition of, uh, of, of movements or language um, that, that kind of contains a moral emotion, something like gratitude, or you, know, you practice it to cultivate courage or, or, or connection with uh, um, you know, loved ones who have passed away. Um, so you're always orienting it towards meaning. A kind of uh, a nice way of thinking about it or, or maybe feeling <laughs> about ritual um, for me is this idea of, of walking the bridge between the way of being that we have in our everyday life, at least in my everyday life, which is, you know, to-do list, got to do this, got to respond to that email, you know, all the busyness of, of everyday life and kind of walking the bridge from that world into a world of um, spaciousness, uh, into a world of uh, connection, uh, into a world of, of meaning. Um, and so, I mean, I, I love sharing a little breath with you just before this conversation started, because it, it's, it's just one of those ways of just crossing that little bridge from, both, from one world into another. Not that one is better than the other, not that you, know, you, you always have to live in the world of ritual and meaning, um, but, but that we have the capacity to cross between them, I think is a really powerful and, and important life, uh, not even life skill, but like, a, like an inheritance that we, that we all get to, uh, get to receive. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, well, there's a lot of ways we can go with this. <laughs> Do you feel as though uh, there's, there's, a, there's an opportunity to kind of uh, cross that bridge more often than we may realize? No doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I wrote this book, The Power of Ritual, and I really wanted it to be um, accessible, especially, especially for, for, for folks who might not have seen themselves necessarily as religious or kind of walking around that, that spiritual but not religious category. Um, and, and the whole orientation of the book is to affirm the things that we already do every day. Um, so, it, you know, whether it's the... Um, uh, you know, the snuggling your kid before bedtime, whether it's the putting moisturizer in your face or, or cooking dinner. Um, I, I really love the idea that our spirituality lives in our everyday life, uh, that it's not going on a beautiful retreat or moving to, you know, Thailand for three months, although those things could be great, um, but that, that we really live out our spiritual life in the everyday. And so to think about 
those everyday practices as opportunities to make into a ritual. Um, so one example is that, you know, when I put moisturizer on my face in the morning, I, I look at myself in the mirror and I say, you know, life is full of joy and suffering and today will be no different, <laughs> which is just a reminder in that kind of this too shall pass idea of like, if you're feeling great, that's awesome. You're going to feel not so great later because that's life. Or if you're feeling really awful, you know, there'll be something nice that happens today. And it's just a, it, it, it's a nice way of affirming for me that the kind of the fullness and the reality of life. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm doing it while I'm putting on my moisturizer, you know, so, th so there's a very, uh, it, it's not, it's not enormously esoteric or complex or uh, uh, challenging. So I, I love having that kind of building in the meaning or, or uncovering the meaning in the everyday. Yeah, it's interesting when you look at, you mentioned earlier that it wasn't a habit and, and you look at kind of, um, there seems to be a, a sense of uh, repetition that comes into to, to, uh, rituals and yes. kind of maybe even you can turn a habit into a ritual in some way Absolutely. if you maybe add some meaning to it or do something with a bit more intentionality. I, I feel as though there, there is a connection between the two, but how does one go about maybe noticing more ways to be able to incorporate uh, ritual in their life? I mean, you pointed it to it so beautifully just in what you said there. I, I like to think about the way in which we can move from a habit to a ritual as three things, intention, attention, and repetition. Um, and so the, the kind of the big one is, is that first step is, is finding an intention, right? Is finding a, a reason or a symbolic meaning or something additional to the functionality that we want to add to it. Um, the second one is to find a way to pay attention while we practice it. Because sometimes with habits, you know, maybe you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're thinking about the fight you had with your partner, you know, whatever it is that, that, our, that our awareness is actually somewhere very different, especially if it's a habitual task. You know, if you're driving, you're like, wait, I can't remember what happened in the last five minutes <laughs> of my driving. That's a good sign that our brains were elsewhere. And so uh, uh, it, to find a way to pay attention, this is why in traditional religious liturgies, you so often see things like incense or beautiful music or, um, you know, different prayer poses. They're all ways of helping our body be present to, to this moment. Um, so using the five senses as a kind of a design uh, orientation around ritual making is really helpful. Um, so building in things that, that taste delicious or that smell nice or that, 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 that strike us in what we can hear and see and touch and, and feel. Uh, those are all ways of helping us to pay attention. And then, as you said, things that repeat over time, uh, that's a really helpful kind of way of, of turning that habit into, into something that's a ritual. And honestly, the, the way I would think about it is to kind of go, uh, as my friend Kushat says, go ritual spotting in your own life. So what, what are the moments already that are kind of latent with opportunity? You know, is there, is there something that you do maybe quietly to yourself? Maybe it's uh, not something you've really even thought about consciously, but a moment where you already feel yourself kind of thinking about big life questions or, or, or a moment where you maybe feel really safe and you, you feel creative in some way. Th those are often the places which are most ready to be turned into a ritual. It's almost as if you want to accentuate certain moments. Um, exactly. And then, and then, yeah, obviously create something around that to make... Uh, make it a bit more meaningful in your life and, and, and on, a, on a regular basis. And that sounds like a really powerful thing. There seems to be, I don't know, like this sense of beauty to it all, you know, this yeah. sense of, um, you know, creating uh, a beautiful moment out of what might've just been another ordinary one. Um, what, 
why would we do any of this besides that reason? Like, what's what's the purpose of ritual and why should people consider maybe, you know, incorporating more of it in their lives? Mm. Yeah, very often we think about ritual as something that's nice to have, um, right? That it's kind of decorative and that it makes life more pleasant and more beautiful. And, yeah. and But it doesn't, it's not really important. I, I feel really strongly that ritual is not just decorative, but it's formative. Um, and by, by that, I mean that the rituals that we practice shape us into the person uh, that, we, that we long to become. Um, if you think about it, uh, you know, uh, what we practice, we become, right? So if, you, if you're practicing piano or if you're practicing taekwondo uh, or if you're practicing generosity or, or courage or humility, uh, right? Th- those, those are things that we cultivate when we practice a ritual. And it's, wh- it's why the intentionality is so important in a ritual because we can, if we're not careful, practice uh, uh, habits and rituals that we don't intentionally choose and that shape us to become something that we actually don't believe in. Um, there's a wonderful theologian and historian, uh, James K. A. Smith, who talks about, um, you know, using the Christian uh, word of, of liturgy, uh, that even if we're not participating in the liturgy of the church, we're participating in the liturgy of the market. Um, and so we're being trained or sell, uh, and that we ourselves consider ourselves as, as part of that kind of uh, uh, world of consumption rather than as, as something, uh, you know, inherently worthy and good um, as, as a, uh, you know, as a spiritual being as well as an economic one. So I really love that idea of, you know, you've got to be careful about the rituals you choose because they'll shape you. Uh, and if we're not careful, we'll end up in places we don't want to be. Yeah, there's almost a sense of, of relationship that takes place, you know, how you're relating to the world, how you're relating to Absolutely. yourself, the people around you, you know, and, and, and just kind of even... Like you could be doing something as simple as, you know, picking up your son, your son from school and you might notice a special tree on the way or something. And, and the way that you relate to that tree, you know, if you do that Absolutely. on a daily basis would have a big impact on, on who you become or who you're becoming as a person. And I understand, yeah, I can see how unconsciously um, we may be doing things uh, ritualistically without even realizing it in a way that, again, shapes us in a direction that we might not want to be going. That That makes total sense. Do you have any special practices to bring back that sense of stillness and, and maybe mm. gain a little bit more clarity um, to become a bit more conscious when that might be happening? Oh, yeah. Although I have to say, I'm so thrilled that you're in Melbourne and you just mentioned relating to a tree because one of the things that I, I wrote about in the book, in the chapter of about connect, connecting with nature, um, I, this was maybe five years ago when trees around Melbourne got those email addresses uh, and people started to write love letters to these trees. And I just thought it was such a beautiful example of how we can relate to the world around us. So that just made my day. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, in terms of specific practices, you know, one of the practices that's been most important for me of building in that kind of time of stillness and, uh, and reflection and, um, and making space, honestly, for, for things that come up that I wouldn't have planned for often more creative or artistic things. Um, is my tech Sabbath practice. And so really inspired by uh, the practice of the Jewish Sabbath. Mm. Uh, on Friday night, I um, light a candle. Uh, I turn off my phone. I turn off my laptop. I hide them in my bookshelf. Uh, and then I stand in the middle of the living room and sing a little song to myself. And for me, it's this moment where I kind of cross that bridge, right, from the, from the time of work and, 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 and striving and creating and all of that stuff 
to a time of spaciousness. Um, and I often post on social media before I do this, you know, the work is not done, but it is time to stop. And I really love having that interruption that isn't about completing the tasks, but it's like, nope, Sabbath time is here. Like you just, you just got to roll with it. And, and one of the things that really inspired this practice for me was um, reading Abraham Joshua Heschel, great Jewish theologian uh, and, and rabbi of the 20th century, who really reframed something about Sabbath for me. Instead of seeing you know, a, a time of rest as a time of recharging your batteries or preparing for the work week, he said, no, the work week is a time of preparation for the Sabbath. Mm. And so the Sabbath is the apex, right? Like it's all about this moment. Um, and, and he describes it as entering a palace in time, which during COVID when we can't enter real palaces, it's particularly nice to have that image of like- That just gave me goosebumps, yeah. Isn't it mm. so beautiful? I just, mm. oh, I love it so much. And so, um, yeah, to think, to think of this time is, for me, it feels like going on vacation. I just feel like I enter a different reality. And I know that sounds a little bit <laughs> absurd, but Not honestly, at all. I, I've practiced it only for about six years, but long enough now to feel when I don't practice it, oh boy, do I notice, you know, I'm, I'm crankier and I'm, I'm, I'm just more tired. And I, um, I, I just haven't had that moment of like, drinking you know the, the still water of cool calm delight um that just gives that sense of rhythm in a week uh because i i'm already counting down to friday night right now <laughs> <laughs> that's that's amazing yeah that's it's it's an interesting way of reframing it and i've never really thought of it like that for me i kind of see it as kind of returning to myself in a way that that time and however i yeah. kind of go about doing that and i think it is very important and and yeah, it's 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 such a meaningful thing to do to just be able to, in whichever way you choose, to come back to that state of stillness, and then just kind of you know, just stop for a moment and just allow yeah. and just be you know because we're so much in, in other realms in most our most of our lives and and you know it, it actually takes a little bit of, uh, planning and a little bit of organization to set yes. these things up. Can you talk to me a little bit about the planning aspect of rituals or the, the setting up part of it? Because it feels like that's a component as well. Oh, it's so important. And, you know, it, it's so funny to say, oh, you know, it's just about giving ourselves space to be, but we never do, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's mm. <laughs> because the entire structure of our society is set up that we don't have it. You know, if you mm. live in a city, if you're uh, you know, if your work is, is, is engaging technology in some way, it's extremely difficult. And it's so um, important because of that as well. Absolutely. All the mm. more so. I mean, I think of Jenny O'Dell's great book, How to Do Nothing, right? Which is such a provocative title because in the world that we live in, you know, even, even our, our kind of hobbies turn into hustles, right? Like even, even the things that we do to bring ourselves joy, you know, whether you're knitting something or you're baking something, it's then got to be Instagrammed and you're producing something. Um, so it, it's remarkably challenging. And so for me, that's why turning off literally the, the, the tools of my labor as it is like the phone and the, the laptop was so important in creating that space. Um, but for me, uh, th there's kind of multiple angles to that preparation space. Um, one is, uh, really about the time and that's why I love Sabbath practices. One of them, because it's the same time every week. And so if I'm just you know, if, if creating that space is dependent on me, it's going to happen once or twice and then never again, you know. Um, but if I'm following a rhythm, which we could even describe as, as a sacred rhythm, um, there's something about 
the practice that isn't dependent on me, but it's about me adhering to something that's been laid out for me. Um, and I've personally found that really helpful. Um, one of my favorite poets, John O'Donohue, who famously said the second best thing he ever did was to become a Catholic priest. And then the best thing he ever did was to leave the priesthood. Um, <laughs> he, he talked about a holy life is a life lived in rhythm. And so I think in terms of thinking about our preparation, figuring out what's our sacred rhythm for our life, you know, and it might be for some people that it's really about morning practices or it's really about once a month, you know, doing this or, or, or once a year going away for seven days. I, I don't mind what it is, but having some sense of what, what our kind of sacred rhythm is, I think is one really important thing. And then the other part, and honestly, this is often more tricky, is to try and find ways in which we don't keep these rituals just to ourselves. Um, because it can be, first of all, hard to sustain motivation when we, when we don't feel like it, if it's just dependent on us. But it's also, I think, sometimes a little dangerous to practice things just on our own, because we can either get caught in thought traps that tell us we're the worst thing that's ever happened, or that we're the greatest thing that's ever happened. Um, and so finding a way to socialize a ritual, whether you're practicing it with someone directly, uh, whether you're telling a friend uh, or a partner that this is something that's part of your life, or honestly, the thing that's been enormously helpful for me is to find, you know, whether it's someone who can accompany you in your spiritual life or, or, or a sort of spiritual director, um, or, or a teacher of a practice is enormously helpful to have just some sense of a, a handrail that you can follow as you as you deepen your ritual life. I hope that you're really getting something special out of this conversation with Casper. I've started playing little uh, interludes that I'm that I'm that I'm creatively adding into the show as a way of giving you a chance to digest some of the things that we've spoken about and how they may apply to your own life. And um, yeah, just breaking up the show a little bit and sh sharing some cool kind of musics and, and, and some awesome artists with you guys. Um, so feel free to skip this section if you want to continue with the conversation. Um, but also feel free to just let it be and, um, and see what comes up for you. There's another connection besides that I want to bring it back to this, this thing you said about the trees in Melbourne. <laughs> There's another really strong connection between us and it's a really strange one and it's only one that I discovered uh, last night or the night before, I think. Um, in your book, you've got uh, you've got a book, by the way. <laughs> we'll, we'll put some out. We'll share some details about that soon. But in the book, you talk about a couple of different things. It's actually the way you've structured the book has really aligned with something I came up with about a month ago, about really what my meaning in life is. And this is really mm. a, a profound thing. But um, I've been really thinking about what I'm doing here. And 
and where where my life's going and and what I realized I want to be doing is really finding a way to deeper the connect deepen connection between people and themselves. How do I find a way to deepen that is a question I've been asking. How can mm-hmm. I deepen the question uh, the the connection between people and the ones around them and people mm-hmm. in the planet? And it's so mm-hmm. weird. I opened up your book and you've got literally the, <laughs> those three things in an extra as, as the as the kind of structure of the book. So could you talk to me a little bit about that because this is something you know it's it's got my full attention and and i want to dive a little bit deeper into it with you well first of all i i'm so thrilled that i mean to have that kind of clarity about your own purpose and the calling that's that's a beautiful thing to to have so i I appreciate you sharing that for me it was a really helpful way of finding some way to to give a structure to this incredible bounty of um, spiritual practices. Um, you know, I, I, one usual way to cut the cake, if I can put it that way, is to say, oh, this is a Jewish practice. This is a Christian practice. This is a you know, Buddhist practice. This is a uh, whatever. Um, and that's enormously helpful. And we need to honor those lineages. But I think for more and more people, either they've grown up in a multi-faith household, so you're, you're already carrying two traditions, or you've grown up in a household with nothing much in particular, so you don't really have a place to start with, or you're starting with uh, you know, a tradition that maybe you feel really marginalized from or excluded from, or it just doesn't seem to sit quite right. Um, and so I, the way I wanted to invite people to explore these ancient wisdom practices was instead to think about something that's very approachable and practically helpful in our everyday life. Um, and so, as you said, the, the way I kind of structured the book was to think about what are the practices that can help you reconnect with yourself, with the people around you, the people you love, and sometimes the people you don't love, um, <laughs> the natural world, and then this sense of transcendence, the sense of something that's bigger than ourselves. And honestly, Michael, to some extent, each of those practices also relates to another type of connection. So it's, it's a little bit foolish to try and structure it in this definitive way. Um, but nonetheless, I found it uh, a, a helpful way of, of just saying, hey, if this part is maybe something you already do really well, great. For me, for example, I'm such an indoor boy. You know, I'm, I'm not a natural world. <laughs> it's not the first, first thing I'm going to choose, right? If, I'm, if you give me a book to read on the sofa or a mountain bike to ride through the, through the mountains, I'm choosing the book. Um, so for me, I know that practices that connect me with, with nature are extremely important because otherwise it just kind of fades from my consciousness. Mm. Um, and so it was just another way of thinking about hmm, what's a place to lean into in terms of the, the experience of connection that I have, especially in this moment where I think more and more of us feel disconnected from ourselves and, and the world around us. Yeah, it feels like we're going through um, stranger time than normal, but it's always been quite strange, I guess. And yeah. it seems as though right now is the perfect time to be, well, again, thinking about kind of what I was talking about earlier, just kind of bringing about a sense of connection. And Mm. that's only because, you know, we're so disconnected in this kind of illusion of the separate self. So Mm -hmm. when we're talking about connecting on a deeper level with ourselves, you know, we've already talked about a few different ways to incorporate rituals in our own life. Can you share some examples about maybe how to to bring about more of a sense of community and, and how to connect with others on a deeper level? Yeah, so in the book, I talk about a couple practices, some of which are not quite possible right now, um, but eating together is a really, you know, age-old strategy that works. The other one that I was There's really something about in, food, isn't there? There's something about oh, food. Oh, yeah, mm. absolutely, absolutely. And, and there's, I think, multiple layers of this. You know, one is that 
I mean, food is the natural gathering tool, right? It it, bring, it brings people <laughs> to the to, together. If you're hosting a party, the best place to be is the kitchen. Um, <laughs> mm. But it's uh, but it but it has a, a just a, a natural gravity to it. So mm. so that's easy. Um, and also, you know, it's something we all have to do. And so naturally, whether it's a you know a grace before a meal, whether it's a certain way of eating things, whether it's a, a structured way of engaging particular foods, you think of the, the Passover seder, for example. Um, food has often been at the heart of uh, uh, at the heart of ritual making, also because it's a very sensual experience. Right, we smell, we taste, we see, mm. uh, 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 we, we touch it, um, and and the, using those five senses to create ritual is a great way of, of focusing off of kind of present awareness and, and attention. So that's that's food, uh, but that's trickier to do during lockdown. The, the one I'm really interested in this context is the the work I did looking at fitness communities. Um, because moving our bodies together is a really powerful way of feeling connected to others around us, even without having conversation. So if you think about, you know, oh, I want to, you know, get to know this person better, or I want to build connection, or I want to build community, we often think about sharing conversation, storytelling, uh, uh, shared vulnerability, and that's beautiful and powerful. But what I saw in these in these fitness communities uh, was that by simply, whether it was working out together, rowing together you know, what, what, whatever the physical practice was, by moving our bodies in tandem at the same time, there was a sense of connection to other people, even without words. And that works relatively well, even from a distance. Um, so it, it's, uh, you know, I have a friend who, for example, does a lot of conflict resolution work, and she'll have a group that's in conflict, just do a two-step together, you know, dancing from side to side for like half an hour before they ever sit down to have a conversation. Because it's such an effective way of just getting their bodies in sync. Um, so even if you're, if you're doing this at distance, uh, you know, whether it's kind of safely outside or whether it's mediated through technology, you know, playing the same track and having everyone move in, in the same way, that sense of being part of an imagined community is, is remarkably effective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, there's so much, <laughs> again, there's so much I want to talk to you about here. Actually, I want to be trying to, trying to form, uh, uh, some kind of a community myself in person, like an in-person community. And I've been playing with the idea of just kind of finding a way to have people in silence together and, and trying to make that work and yes. have some kind of connection. So, Well, yeah. shared silence is another great strategy that we often don't think about. Sharing silence can be one of the most intimate things uh, in a world that's, that's organized around noise. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's, there's some beautiful, uh, I'm thinking about a community in Salt Lake City uh, run by a friend of mine who grew up Mormon, ended up going to Southeast Asia for about 10 years uh, and, and really going deep into the Buddhist tradition, nearly becoming a monk and, and a few, I think, honestly, a few months before he was about to be ordained saying, oh no, what I'm called to do is come back with this training mm. of, of insight and meditation into a Mormon theology and build this community of silence and shared quiet and meditation in the middle of the kind of Mormon heartlands. And, wow. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing, I mean, he's an amazing guy, uh, Thomas McConkey, really wonderful. Um, but but it, it's one way, I think, in which that shared silence right now is something that we're hungry for. So I think I think people will really resonate with that invitation. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> great, great to grab that little bit of feedback from you. Um, can you, where do we go with this now? So I'm just thinking... Yeah, I'm feel I'm feeling that you've you've been to divinity school, right? And mm. you've you've studied this, you've got this 
I wouldn't say religious background from what I know um, right. of your upbringing, but um, it seems as though you've kind of connected the s- things from this religious realm to the everyday experience you were talking about a bit earlier, um, you know, fitness communities, and that's almost like a bit of a religion in itself. And yeah. and it seems like a lot of the things you're talking about, even with food and, and a couple of the other points that you've mentioned there seems to be these connections that you're really good at kind of bridging over and, and noticing and, and kind of um, observing and analyzing and working with. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about some more things that you've noticed there or even your time at Divinity School? Yeah. Like, like what were you doing there? That sounds interesting. Well, I, I mean, it was definitely an unexpected turn because as you said, you know, I didn't grow up with any sort of religious background. Uh, I'm gay. I came out in high school. So religion to me, always seemed either irrelevant or cruel. Um, so it was, it was, it was a surprise to all concerned. Um, but the reason why I ended up there was uh, I was really involved as a as a young person in climate change activism. So I was mobilising young people. Uh, actually, a lot of friends in Australia involved with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Um, so uh, yeah, part, part of this kind of real sense of a movement and a mission. And one of the challenges for me was that in the big moments of kind of political decision making especially around the UN negotiations, we didn't get the deal we needed. And for me, I kind of realized that I'd been working on a level of policy advocacy and, and politics, you know, getting this party elected or working with that politician, when really for an issue like climate, which is global and across time, it, it's a question of shifting our paradigm of how we understand mm. ourselves to be in relationship with each other. And so I, I was lost when I was thinking about, well, how, how do we think about shifting culture how do we think about shifting paradigms and so i ended up in divinity school because i wanted to learn kind of at a distance from these religions about how religious traditions have tried to shape people's understanding of the world so that was your catalyst to kind of get in there that's right yeah that's right Mm. that's right and and what i was surprised to find out was the ways in which some of these practices and these traditions ended up being personally really meaningful and so while i was sitting in the classroom uh together with my classmate and now co-founder um angie thurston she and I, she'd come from a theater background, also very non-traditional kind of student in the div school context. Both of us were sitting in the classroom saying, look, we're learning about text study. We're learning about ritual. We're learning about, you know, how groups sing together to form community. Um, but none of our friends are involved in religious congregations. Where are they going to find this sense of meaning and community? And so we started to just honestly interview friends and friends of friends to ask them, where where are you going? And this was the moment when I started to make that connection between the kind of ancient practices and the modern world was people started to tell stories about, you know, the arts group that they were part of or the maker space or the CrossFit gym or the the fan community, uh, you know, going to conventions together, the live action role play group that they were part of. And at first we were like, oh, that's interesting. That's nice. But then they started to tell stories about getting married in, uh, uh, you know, in, in with their arts community, um, asking their soul cycle instructor if they should get divorced from their husband. Um, we saw people getting together for, for talent nights uh in in their fitness group you know all of these things that you would expect to see raising money for each other looking after each other's kids if they're going away all of this stuff that you would happen you would expect to see happen in a religious congregation were happening in these secular spaces and so we started to see hang on spiritual life is not just happening within religious institutions all of these kind of spiritual things <laughs> are happening outside but we just don't label them as such um, and so that really started our interest to, to look at how 
you know, not necessarily that religion is declining as we usually think about it, as more and more people report that they're less and less religious, but that religion is kind of changing and that it's happening in new places and in, in new ways, but with these very kind of recognizable ancient roots. It's interesting when we look at the idea of um, solitude and how beneficial that can be to one per to 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 a person, but then at the, in the same breath, you know, it can actually be quite detrimental if you don't have that sense of community in your life. And yeah. um, you can see how things that can easily, you know, in many people's lives, are becoming more and more disconnected because there isn't that sense of community. They don't have that kind of yeah. grounding. And and it, there's something really beautiful about bringing people together. And being in collaboration with one another, not being in competition, mm. knowing that your brother or your sister, whoever that may be to you and your family or, you know, wider friend network or in your community, you know, people have your back and, and the things that you do for people will be reciprocated in, in ways that you might not need to kind of foretell. And, and there's, there's this sense of kind of, I can lean back and trust in my community and my mm. community can trust in me. And there's a real beautiful thing that I feel, you know, should really really be kind of focused on at the moment because it seems like it's really missing in a lot of ways. Mm. Absolutely. And and there's so much data that supports that argument, you know, whether it's just indicators such as the average number of people we have over to dinner in our own home per year, uh, that's halved in the US uh, in the last couple of decades, um, whether it's self-reported rates of, of feeling lonely. And, it, and it's important to draw a distinction here between social isolation, which is the structural uh, uh, d disconnection that we experience. So, uh, you know, the number of people who are separated or who live alone, uh, the number of people who work from home uh, on their own, right? So, so the structural ways in which we have less physical and, and emotional connection, um, but then also the experience of loneliness, which is the difference between the connection that we want and the connection that we have. And so what's so important in what you said, I think, is that sometimes we can feel at our loneliest when we're surrounded by other people because we don't feel we can be ourselves or we don't feel that we're understood or, or people are interested in us. Um, and so having both of those things at the same time, uh, not only is, you know, an, an unpleasant experience, there's now all sorts of evidence to suggest that it's as deadly to, you know, it's as, as impactful on our rate of mortality as being clinically obese or smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So, you know, these practices of connection are not just nice to have, they are life-saving strategies. Um, and I think one of the one of the really important things that maybe the kind of the medical field as it is discovering the impact of the importance of healthy relationships is that we have this whole treasure trove of spiritual practices, which are all about healthy experiences of connection, that we can draw on those as strategies for, for healthcare even. Um, and that's, I think that's starting to happen now in, in you know, healthcare providers who are really switching on to that. Uh, but it, but it's, it's kind of an ancient form of medicine. You know, we are each other's medicine. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Yeah, that's kind of why, why I created this show. I, I really wanted to have a way to explore some of these practices on a deeper level and have people kind of maybe experiment a little bit with them and, and you know, bring people closer with that sense of connection. Um, do you have any um, specific uh, practices that you may want to share that's mm. outside of the normal, I guess, um, meditation or yoga or, or breath work? Is there anything that, uh, you yeah. know, along your time or during your studies that you've kind of discovered that you've, that's caught your attention in an interesting way? Well, I, I've become very passionate about text study. Um, I have a, uh, a, a podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text together with my co-founders, Vanessa Zoltan and Ariana Nettleman. And, um, 
you know, in the same way that you were saying before, when we looked out into the world, what, what did we see? One of them was the way in which people loved fiction, loved movies, loved, loved stories, um, and particularly the way in which fan communities have built around a particular text. And so uh, I was really excited to see about, uh, to see the way in which the Harry Potter fandom had not just kind of loved the books, but had been extremely creative responding to the book. So you had, you know, uh, students at a college in Michigan creating a Harry Potter musical. You had pages and pages of, you know, uh, uh, not just fan fiction, but fan art. You had all, you know, the most wonderful kind of creations that came out of this, out of this world, out of this story. Uh, and particularly, we saw that people turned towards these books after a breakup. Uh, if they'd lost someone in the family, you had child uh, uh, psychologists saying that when they asked their, their, um, you know, their patients, these young children who they were working with, to imagine a safe place, more often than not, they would imagine Hogwarts, which for anyone who's read the Harry Potter books is kind of ironic because Hogwarts is <laughs> not at all a safe place. But in the, in the way, the, the place it occupied in our cultural imagination. It was for it, Harry in a way, I guess. It would no doubt. It was certainly home. I wouldn't say it was safe, but mm, yeah, mm, mm. <laughs> that's 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 a great point. So all of which was to say, we didn't have to convince anyone that Harry Potter was a sacred text. People were already treating it as a sacred text. What we ended up doing with the podcast was to offer some of the textual reading practices from the Christian and Jewish traditions as a way to help people not only love the book more, but to reflect using the book on their own life. So the way that we talk about textual study is to say, this isn't about escape or about fantasy. Uh, you know, reading books as sacred don't help us escape the world, they help us to live better in it. Um, so, to, so to use the text as a mirror for our own life. So one very concrete example of that is a practice called Lectio Divina, uh, which is just the, the Latin uh, uh, for sacred reading. And uh, the, the inspiration for us is from a, a monk called Guijo II, uh, who was a Carthusian monk in the 13th, 14th century. Uh, and he wrote this little pamphlet, really. It's very short, called The Ladder of Monks. And in it, he gives um, kind of four steps of reflection um, for people, of course, in that context, they were using the Bible, but, but four steps of reflection. And with each step, he imagines that you kind of climb up the ladder towards heaven. How do these people come up with these things? This is like incredible. Isn't it so fun? Yeah. And so the way that we do a little transliteration of what those four steps are, but the way that we talk about it are that the first step is to say, you know, you take a sentence, you take a passage at random, whatever you want, or even just a single word. And you ask yourself at first, what's happening narratively here in the story? This is the way we usually read a book, right? What's going on? Who's this character? What's happening in the plot? Okay, step one. Then the second step with the same piece of text, you read it again out loud, and this time you ask, what am I reminded of allegorically? And this is about opening our imagination. So what am I reminded of? Maybe it's a movie scene, maybe it's a, a pop song, maybe it's a fairy tale, you know, whatever. Just allow all of that, say it out loud, say it out loud. And what we're doing, Guijo tells us, if, imagine the text is a grape that we put into our mouth. We, we bite into it and all the juices explode. So this is really about the kind of, you know, allowing some uh, imagination and spaciousness. In is there something about the verbalization that's important in, the, in that as well? For me, it is. I, I, you know, it's, I think it's especially doing it as a community, hearing different people read the text already shapes how we receive it. Mm. Um, so it can, be, it can be really helpful to hear other people read it aloud. Even if you're doing it by yourself, reading it out loud, just keep centering yourself. You, you encounter the text anew every time that you read it. 
So the third one is, is takes it from the text into our own life. And we ask ourselves, what am I reminded of in my own life? What experience have I had that I'm reminded of by this piece of text? So suddenly you're thinking about your own memories, your own experiences. There might be something that, that's evoked by a particular word that you haven't thought about in a while. So suddenly we're integrating this piece of text into our own life so that when we ask the fourth reflection question, which is traditionally, what is God asking me to do through the text? The way that we ask it is, what is the text asking of me in this moment? Suddenly, you know, you started reading about, you know, Draco Malfoy, and you're ending up thinking about, oh, I really should donate some money to that cause that I care about, or I should call my sister, it's been too long since we've spoken. Or, you know, we've, we've had people write into the show that some of those Lectio Divina readings that we've done you know, that they've decided to adopt a child or they're moving country or, you know, some major life decisions. And um, what, what I love about this practice is that it's really about giving us a space and a structure to do intentional reflection about the life that we're living. Um, so that's just one of the practices that we use. There's so many different ways of engaging text, but um, suddenly I'm like a huge fan of text study. And if you'd told me that 10 years ago, I would have never believed you. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you say text study, it sounds quite boring, but when you put it in the right? way that you have, it sounds very <laughs> exciting. And I'd love to hear some more at, at some point down the track, because this is fascinating stuff that you're sharing with us, Casper. It really is. And and it, it's interesting how a lot of these decisions come back to that that sense of knowing and, and yeah. that, that from in, from you know wherever it's from deep inside or however you want to look at it yeah. but it's it's sort of things that people probably already you know realize that they should be doing but they were just a little bit disconnected from that because of all the all the other stuff that's going on you know absolutely one of the biggest joys you know we started the podcast in in 2016 we actually ran it as an in-person class for a year before that but is to see how the listening community you know there's been more than 30 million downloads at this point. So there's tens of thousands of listeners all around the world. They've self-organized into local groups. And so they get together um, to do sacred reading practices. Of course, now it's all online with COVID, but uh, it, it's amazing to see how communities are formed around this text. Um, and, and it's really not about us as podcast show hosts. It's, a, it's about the relationship between those communities and the, and the texts that they love and trust. So it's, um, yeah, honestly, it's, it's, it's a real joy to see how, how those practices live in, in a whole new way. Um, and even and, for, and think, for yourself to have found a way to be able to serve in, in, in such a way that, yes. you know, brings so many people together in, and they're actually bringing themselves together. So that's, that's exactly. really powerful. You're kind of this multiplier of, of community and, and connection, which is amazing. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's still bewildering. And, and of course, when people get together, they want to do things. And so, you know, people have raised money for, for various justice issues. We've created a podcast mutual aid fund. So people were not only sharing money, but also like sending art to each other or saying, if anyone just wants someone to talk to, you know, call me on this number. So it was just, I, I'm excited to think about what is going to be, you know, the religious infrastructure of the future. You know, if it's not necessarily going to be around traditional congregations, what are, what are the structures of relationship? What are the ways in which people can learn to, to be together in a way that, you know, builds, as Charles Eisenstein would say, builds the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible. Mm. Actually, he's coming on the show soon. That's, that should be an interesting uh, conversation. So amazing. I'm, I'm glad that you, you've, you, you follow some of his work as well. I'm, I'm looking, I'm exploring at, at the moment, um, this idea of vibes, the idea of this kind of instinctual you know unquantifiable thing that exists and and we can feel um that's pretty distinctive as well can you talk to me 
a bit about the vibes that are generated within these groups or anything that, you know, anything that comes to mind that you may have noticed from um, your work with community or even with sacred texts or even mm. something from as far back as your schooling? Yeah, mm, that's, a good, that's a good question. And I'll, I'll, I'll share a little bit and add a caveat at the end. Um, it's funny because leading a community is extremely skilled work. Um, and, and, you know, community leaders that I really admire are so able to, to, to lean in and then step back. And, you know, you're always watching multiple layers of things going on. And one of the kind of metrics that I have in my mind to look for a healthy community is, you know, do people stay around after the event has finished? That's always a good sign, right? Do people want to be together even when there's no formal reason to be there? Um, you know, how is leadership distributed? Uh, can a community have conflict safely without things exploding or people storming out or, you know, or pretending that everything is fine when it's not, you know, those are all kind of signs of a healthy community. So th those are some of the vibes that I might look, look, look for, you know, can people cry and laugh without it being, you know, a disaster or, or, or overly intense, um, you know, a sense of psychological safety. Um, but one of the challenges by kind of just working with vibes is that very quickly, communities form with other people like them. And un unless, you know, we've seen mm. over and over again how new communities start up because, hey, someone invites their friends to come along and their friends. And suddenly, you know, two years into the community's life, you're looking around, you're like, oh, we're all white and we're all, you know, upper middle class men, or whatever it is. Um, and then if you, from that point, want to start building something that's more inclusive or, or diverse, it's very, very difficult. And so, but it's easiest to have vibes with those people. <laughs> so there's a, there's a balance here, I think, of, you know, one of the communities I, I loved and I learned so much from was a group called The Sanctuaries in Washington, D.C. It was set up by a guy called Eric Wesley, and he spent two years getting to know people randomly in cafes, going to meetups, you know, really broadening his set of friends, honestly, especially across religious and racial lines. And in Washington, D.C., as in every American city, you know, the, the geography is racialized uh, for all sorts of historical reasons of, 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 you know, black people literally not being able to get loans or being able to move into certain neighborhoods. So he knew if I start a community with my friends and in a specific place forever, it is going to be positioned in this one thing. And I purposely want to build a multiracial community. So that means I have to have actual friendships with folks from different racial and religious contexts um, and invest in those relationships and move the community around every time we meet. And it was one of the most successful multiracial communities I've come across. And it's because he, he didn't just trust the vibes, right? It was like vibes plus, plus effort. <laughs> mm. um, and I think maybe that's, maybe that's what, we, what we need to aim for. As we, as we when I say that. vibes, I more mean like the, the energy that's created between two individuals. But I can definitely mm. see how that takes place, how that could take place. And it's definitely something to be mindful of when... I guess, forming a community or bringing people together, sure. how, because inclusivity is, is kind of feels like a very important thing. It, it feels like it's, it's something that um, helps bring people together rather than separate, separates them further. Yeah. It, it, it honestly, it strengthens the community. That, that's why I'm, I'm not passionate about, you know, racial justice or even just the idea of diversity and, and inclusion just because it's the right thing or it's, it's, it's the thing we should do, which of course it is, but it actually makes communities stronger and better. Um, whether it's the ideas that you're drawing from the, the, the kind of resources in terms of the stories and songs and strategies that you have access to, it's just better. Um, and so, um, 
yeah, it's it's one of the things that I'm really conscious of when thinking about you know uh, uh, community building, especially. So we've talked a little bit about uh, this idea, just coming back to this, because this is really good stuff. And I want to dive a little bit deeper before we close things off. We've talked about um, this idea of food bringing people together. You've mentioned the power of story, you know, with, I guess it's part of human nature that we can kind of connect to some kind of an arc. And then uh, in some way we can relate to that as well. Um, Do you have any other kind of um, things that you've noticed that really help shape or bring people together in a strong way other than other than the points that we've that we've touched on is there anything else mm. I'm, I'm i'm digging here but i'm, I'm hoping you can <laughs> you can show me oh, more so many. Yeah, yeah i mean there's so many the, the one for me that's really important is singing um I, you know one of the ah, yeah. the things that we can't all talk at once but we can all sing together um you can create melody on your own but you can only create harmony together you know there, there's so much um, for me, and it's the thing I miss most, honestly, during COVID is not being able to sing with, with, with friends or in a choir. Um, There's a real sense of union when you've got the voices all, all in unison and all kind of together. I had, I had an interesting conversation last week with Janet Stone about chanting and about Absolutely. Yeah. And this idea of kind of reuniting people through the voice and through that's, that's our first and main instrument. So absolutely. And, and it has, it's, you know, it's not just an, an oral experience. It's a physical experience because when we sing together, we end up breathing in the same cycle. We end up breathing at the same time. So again, that sense of embodied, uh, right. That we talked about with fitness communities, that the same thing is happening when we sing. Um, and for me personally, it's the only time, honestly, when my brain disengages from like busy thoughts, <laughs> like I'm never having a second conversation in my brain if I'm, if I'm singing, because it just, something for me, it, it just settles, it settles my mind and settles my spirit. And so, um, yeah, yeah. That's pointing me towards, I guess, the last chapter of your book, which we haven't really touched on much. And mm. that is um, kind of transcending through, through all of this in, in some way and however you want to take that. So it not only for me when I sing or when I chant, it, it clears the mind, but it also there's there's sometimes you get to a different yes. place. You get to this yes. place that it's pretty hard to put into words and and it's it's this amazing feeling that you can really only experience, you know, it's it's very hard to kind of describe it or understand it unless <laughs> you're there. Um, but could you talk a little bit about that last chapter of your book and 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 what's it called, first of all? And and could you kind of describe that a little bit? Because I find that fascinating and I didn't really dive into it too much. Yeah, yeah. So the book's called The Power of Ritual. And as you said, that last chapter really thinks about how do you connect with a sense of something bigger than yourself. Um, and so I use that language of transcendence. Um, and I, I love that example of singing and chant where you can feel connected to people around you horizontally, but then there's a connection to something greater kind of vertically happening at the same time. Um, and, and you can all be there at once, you know, that's something really yeah, nice. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the practice that I really focus on reimagining in that chapter is about prayer, which to me, I'd always been so hesitant about that. I was like, what's this magical jukebox in the sky? You know, this, this isn't real. Um, but the way in which I, I kind of try and reinterpret what prayer is about is really about a, a sense of connecting w- with otherness. And I think you're right to point to the difficulty of language here. Um, one of the traditions I love in Islam is the idea of reciting the 99 names of God, right? That there are that there are so many names uh, uh, and so many uh, aspects of the divine um, and that, you know, you're, you're never going to resonate with all of them at the same time, but there are, there are little snippets that we might be able to, to connect with. Um, mm, and so I, 
I, I think that beyond language is a, is a, <laughs> it's probably the best way to talk about it is to not talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, makes total sense. Probably a good place to uh, close things off, Casper, because I'm, I'm kind of um, cognizant of time as well. Um, oh, but thank you. How can we? How can people, you know, get a hand, handle onto your book and, and find out a little bit more about yourself, what you're doing with this um, Harry Potter community, which sounds amazing. Um, can you share some information with us? And I'll definitely put some stuff in the show notes. Yeah, you bet. So uh, the, the book is powerofritual.org uh, and it comes out in Australia in September. Um, mm. So you'll have a, a, a publication locally as well, which is great. Um, and then you can um, sign up for, for either daily, uh, weekly newsletter, I should say, uh, which is at caspertk.com. You can sign up for the newsletter there. Um, and the Harry Potter podcast is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And we're uh, halfway through book seven, the final in the series. So you can listen all the way through the last four years of the podcast if you're, if you're a completist. Um, and uh, you can always find me on Twitter at caspertk. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for you know joining me today and, and connecting with me and and kind of having this this moment with me where we can kind of share and and hopefully add some value in other people's lives and help them kind of connect with the the power of ritual. No, I really appreciate it, Michael. Thank you so much for the the work that you do and the conversations that you have, and uh, I really appreciate the invitation to be with you. Awesome. Thank you for tuning into this conversation with Casper. Um, I'll leave links to you know, anywhere that you can access his stuff in the show notes and the description sections. Uh, if you're enjoying this, this, I guess, this new style of the show, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you guys. I'm available on, you know, you can message me through YouTube. So that's just youtube.com forward slash today.dreamer. Uh, you can message me on Instagram today.dreamer or you can just uh, write to me michael at todaydreamer.com. Please reach out, give me some feedback and let me know what you're thinking and how you're feeling about the show and if it's helping you and if there's any suggestions. I'd love to connect. I'd love to hear from you guys. And um, yeah, just honestly, from, from the bottom of my heart, I wanted to say thank you for being a part of this journey so far and for listening and for, you know, just being here with me. You know, I appreciate it. Okay, that's it. I'll catch you in the next episode.